So we were listening there to the Alleluia from the Carmelite Sisters in Benoni. Very beautiful. And of course, we're playing Alleluias because we're in the Easter octave at the moment and allowed to sing Alleluia again after the long Lenten fast from it. We're about to be speaking now to Professor Jeanne Bornman from the Center for Augmentative and Alternative Communications. She's also a, a professor at, UG, um, at Pretoria University, and we're, we're delighted to have her online. Good morning, Professor Bornman. Good morning, Francis. I am also delighted to be able to speak to you. Thank you. So, so nice to have you on, on the show again. I realized as I, as I was preparing for this that I had never heard the phrase augmentative and alternative communications before. And I just wanted to ask you if you could start by just explaining a little bit to, to, to myself and to the listeners what that is, and then we, we can talk about who, who it applies to. <laughs> okay. Yes, I must say, augmentative and alternative communication is quite a mouthful. And that is why in the literature we also just abbreviated and speak about AAC. Right. Now, the important thing is that the first focus is then obviously on augmentative. So that means that we have some people that aren't able to only rely on their spoken voices to make their communication needs known. So they would need to use something additional in, in order to uh, enhance what they're trying to communicate. So that would be, for example, like using a gesture or writing a word, or in some cases also using a computer to, to supplement what they're trying to say. Okay. But then we also have some individuals who need to use an alternative system totally. So that would be people, for example, that had a motor car accident or a, a stroke and that has a very high lesion of the neck. And they, for example, only able to use their eyes. So they can, for example, input on a computer by using something like iBlink. So in those cases, it would be a totally alternative system. And we're trying to just combine these two forms of communication and hence the term augmentative and alternative. Well, okay, so, so straight off the bat, what I'm hearing is that that you've got a, a real range of kind of disability that you're looking at when you're thinking about AAC. Absolutely. And I think the other very important thing is that it is something that applies to both children and to adults. So mm -hmm. we would have some individuals that have uh, what we would call a congenital condition. In other words, something that is present from birth. Mm -hmm. And that could range from a whole range of different things. For example, people that have intellectual disabilities, like Down syndrome, some people um, who would have autistic spectrum disorder, motor disabilities like cerebral palsy, and then it could also include some acquired conditions. And then we would have children, for example, or adults that had been in motor vehicle accidents. Uh, we could have near drowning incidents that have an impact on, on the development further. And then for adults, we could also have things like stroke, we could have conditions like Parkinson's disease, and then a lot of the degenerative conditions like motor neuron disease or, or ALS. And I think with U.S. Fonavesta even recently being in the media, I think a lot of people became aware of the impact of losing communication in a degenerative condition such as that. Okay. So, so just give me a sense. I mean, I'm aware that South Africa is this kind of very... Um 
strange society in that we, we, we kind of we have some first world elements, we have some third world elements to borrow those terms. We we, we have we have very different kinds of access to, to resources. What are the challenges in South Africa for people who need alternative who need AAC really? Okay. Well, I think the first thing that is really important to understand is that when we look at the whole range of AAC, we distinguish between two broad categories. The first lot is what we call all of the different unaided strategies. Now, an unaided strategy would be something where you only need your body to communicate. And if we think of the range here, that could be, first of all, of course, speech, because that is what most people understand, and that's ultimately what we aim for. But we know that for some people that is very difficult. So there we could also use things like facial expressions, where you can look at somebody and see, is this mood um, happy, is it sad, is it angry? So you can derive some information from facial expressions. Then we could use our fingers or our hands just to point out, And you can think of little ones when they start pointing out to certain things that they want. Sometimes we can use our eyes, like eye gaze, to point to things that we need. Um, Then we also have what we call natural gestures. And that would be all of those easy-to-understand things, like, for example, when you put your your finger to your lips to indicate shh and be quiet, or that you can um, wave and say hello and goodbye So there's a lot of those natural gestures, and then we can also have some formal gestures, and they would be the signs that come from sign language. Mm -hmm. Um, So in our country, we use South African sign language. In America, for example, they use American sign language. So sign language, too, is not something that is generic and that everybody understands exactly in the same way. So we use South African sign language. So all of those would be the different unaided systems. Then if we look at the aided systems, that would be something where you need something in addition to your own body. And that would range then from the easiest to understand things that would be a real object. For example, you can show a child a cup and then say, do you want something to drink? So they can point to the cup and then later you can even move to choice making and show a cup and a spoon and say, do you first want to drink something or do you first want to eat something? So then after the real objects, we can move to a phase where we can go to line drawings, and then ultimately we can use to move to printed words. Now, all of these aided systems can then be displayed either on low-tech systems, which would be pen and paper-based communication boards, or it could be displayed on high-tech options such as iPads and computers and, and all kinds of electronic equipment. So if we look at the whole range, we can obviously see that we have to figure out which type of system would be most effectively matched to the type of characteristics that the specific individual has. Right. So just just give me a sense now of, I mean, we're talking about both a range of of, um, disabilities, a range of limitations in communication, but also a range of responses and alternatives to, to deal with those, um, what, are, what, what, what would be the particular challenges in our country, in our context? For Maybe we can start with children and then move to adults, but let's start with children. What would be kind of the big, the big issues when we're thinking about children who may, have, who may have problems with communication? 
what are their major major needs and and what are their major what are the major obstacles they need to overcome and 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 how how does how how does society engage with them okay well i think one of the the biggest problems that we have in our country is that we very often look at young children when they when they fail to develop communication skills early on, mm-hmm. that we very often still have this attitude of wait and see, where, the, where somebody will say to the mom, don't be concerned about your child that's not communicating, wait, maybe some of the communication will develop. And this is something that mothers, particularly of boys, struggle with, and where people tend to say, don't worry, boys are late talkers and boys will still develop communication. If a mother is concerned, I think it's very important that she visits a speech therapist and that they start with some form of intervention early on. So our motto is really try and see rather than wait and see. So that we, that we, because if a child is able to develop spoken language and spoken communication, that is what he will use. Um, because we are by default uh, wired to always use the easiest form of communication. So no child is going to communicate by using gestures or using pictures or alternative forms of communication if they can use speech. So that is one of the first big challenges is that we have this uh, inclination to wait and see rather than to try and see. One of the can other problems is there? obviously that a lot of the services in our country is situated in the larger cities. So people that live um, in the more rural areas or uh, that live in the smaller towns, that it's more difficult for them to access a bigger centre. We also have a school system, unfortunately, where all of the teachers are not necessarily trained to identify these children and make sure that they get access um, at a very early age. And then, in some cases, the cost of the devices are quite expensive. If one has to go to the higher op- uh, higher technology options, although I am very happy to say that government has actually last year accepted a tender, so some of these devices are now available at school uh, in, through the school system or through the health system. So, so the important thing is to really identify early on and then to, to go to here uh, for intervention. Okay, so, so if I just, I'm just imagining, um, I know that a lot of the people who listen to our radio station, a lot of them are rural people, a lot of them are people living in townships. If they were to begin, let's say a mom or a grandmother would be beginning to be worried that, that this child isn't yet, their child isn't yet speaking the way they would expect them to, what should they, they should go to the clinic and what should they say? They should actually just say, I am worried or concerned that my child is not doing this and this and this when I compare him or her to children of a similar age. So typically the nurse then should be able to identify and make the referral to the appropriate clinic. Um, so that would typically be the speech therapist. In some clinics and some hospitals, we don't have access to uh, speech therapists. And in those cases, the occupational therapist might also be able to assist. 
Um, there's also a, a very important, if, if there's any what we say a comorbid condition, so if there's anything in addition to the communication, the parents, the mother or the grandmother should also mention that to the therapist. So say, uh, my child has not started sitting like other children is supposed to sit because we know that if there's those delays in some of the other areas of development, the chances are very good of children also having that type of delay in, um, in their communication development. And we always say that it's important to remember that at about one year old, children should be saying single words. So that should be the things like mommy, daddy, tata, look, see, uh, want. And then at approximately from 18 months to two years old, they should be starting to put two words together to form those very early on sentences, look there, come, come dog, uh, no mommy, those types of sentences. So, so that is a very uh, broad sort of guideline in terms of when to be, uh, be concerned. Okay, that's, that's very, very useful. Thank you for that. So there's, it's really important, early detection is important. Yes, because because communication is one of those skills that unfortunately we have a window of opportunity and typically the vocabulary all develops between the ages of zero and seven. So after seven, you are not uh, wired developmentally to, to um, learn language in the same way. After the age of seven, words have to be taught to you in a very specific way. It's actually very interesting in the studies that have been done when they compared adult language and children's language. By the age of seven, you almost have acquired your total vocabulary. The words that you learn after seven are the sort of more scientific words or the educational words, but they're not the basic words that we need for communication. So it's important that in that window of opportunity where children are like sponges and just absorb all of these words, that's when we need to be making sure that we're giving the total amount of impact that we can possibly do. Right. Let's, let's think about children who are a little bit older, um, children who are trying to enter the school system. What are, what are the particular challenges that a child who is is battling with communication might be facing entering the school system? And, and what do they and their families need to be thinking about at that point? Okay. When, when the children start um, learning, uh, accessing uh, education, it's important that we also look at the purpose that language is used for them. Before the school system, language is typically used for communication purposes. But now, the moment when they start entering school, we also have to uh, remember that they are now using language as a medium through which to learn as well. So the vocabulary changes at that point, and that is why it's also very important that the parents and the teacher, that they work together so that the teacher can say, this week, this is the type of words that we'll be using, this is the lessons that we're going to be using, so that we make sure that the children have access to that type of vocabulary. But it's very important to remember that, that language is something that grows and that we have to keep on expanding and adding some of those new words. So all of a sudden, when a child is in a more formal academic context, 
there's additional words that, that need to be taught. And it's very important that we teach those words to the children in a very deliberate way. Uh-huh. Okay, so, so here that what I'm really hearing is that there needs to be close communication between parents and children, between moms, grandmothers, whoever's the caretaker of the child, the primary caregiver, and, and the teaching and, and the people at school. And the people at school. And that also goes for when they're teaching um, at, 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 uh, at creche level or at preschool level. Okay. So that whole uh, reciprocity that goes on between those contexts. And one of the things that we have actually started doing is to encourage parents to use a little book uh, that they can write messages from the home to the school and again from the school to the home. And we encourage parents and teachers to, if they can, just draw a little drawing with it or even paste in a little remnant. For example, if the mom and the child went to KFC the previous afternoon, for them to put in the napkin from KFC into the book and send it home. Because if the child has a communication difficulty and the child goes to the teacher and opens the book and points to the napkin of KFC, the teacher already has context and is mm. something to talk to the child about. Mm. Say, oh, I see you went to KFC. What did you have? And then all of a sudden there's a lot of conversation that can open up around that. The teacher can, for example, when it's um, National Arbor Day, just draw a quick picture of a tree and send that home or put a leaf into the book and say, so that the child can go home and the mom can ask, why a tree? What's was a tree planting day? Did you plant a tree at school or whatever? Mm-hmm. So, so that we just get this interaction going between the child and the parents because otherwise parents also don't know what type of questions to ask when the child comes home. And we all remember that when little ones go to school, they're so eager to share the stories at school of the things that they've been doing at home. And, and by giving them some form of a remnant or an easy drawing and Parents and teachers don't have to be artists to make beautiful artwork. If you draw a picture with a child and you're explaining, I am drawing a dog, even if it doesn't look like a dog, the child will remember that that is what what you were trying to convey. Right. Now, as you're talking about this, I just wanted to ask a question. I know historically there was a strong emphasis uh, in the past on people who had disabilities going into special schools and being streamlined away from normal schooling. But I know that, uh, and we spoke about this before, um, under the new South Africa, there's a real emphasis on on as many children as possible entering main the, the ordinary schooling system. Mm-hmm. Just give me a sense of children who may have some communication difficulties, like the little booklet. I can see that working quite well even in a context where there are some children who don't have communication difficulties and some who do, and, and, and how, do, how might that work, Jean? Exactly, and, and I also think that that's a strategy that works very well if you just have young children who mm-hmm. might not yet have the vocabulary to tell the teachers So in a, in a preschool context. It's very important that children learn from each other. Children pick up more vocabulary from their peers and from their siblings than what they actually do from adults. And so if we have children that have communication difficulties in a group of children without communication difficulties, 
there is a language model that they're able to listen to and that they're able to follow. Whereas if we have a group and there's 10 children and none of those 10 children are speaking, then it's really very difficult because then we don't have these communication role models going on that the children can learn to imitate and to copy. So there's a real argument for integrating children with communication difficulties as quickly as possible into mainstream schooling, especially, it sounds to me, at, at pre-primary level where they can be engaging with children, other children and hearing language around them. Absolutely. So they have to be exposed to language. They have to learn, listen to how language develops, how their peers actually develop their language. And then we've got to figure out the ways in which we can also give these children that have severe communication difficulties access to some of those words, some of the concepts. And, and that is why it's also important that when children become older and when they become teenagers, that they're also exposed to teenage role models and, and to the different types of words that, that teenagers use. Because, as I said, language is something that's dynamic and that grows. And, and that's why you also want to make sure that the children, even as adults, if we, we don't like it, that the children use some of the slang words that, that the rest of their peer group are using because that is also what helps them to be socially integrated and, and to really form part of, of, the, of their peer group. Mm. Yeah, as you so, so like the teenagers that say whatever <laughs> for, for any purpose. But we think of how to also give a child with a communication difficulty access to say whatever. You're saying all of this, and I, I, I have this memory of when I was at university was the first time I was in a class with people with hearing disabilities. Um, there'd been none in my primary or secondary schooling, uh, which probably is a result of the kind of schooling system we were in. But I do remember that because we had two, two, um, we had two people in my history lecture group who, who both uh, used sign language and they had an interpreter, and they they offered to the whole group of us a kind of crash course in sign so that we could we could communicate better in our tutorial group and that was an amazing experience i i i had had no exposure to sign before and i remember the speed with which I learned it, I'm really bad at languages, but I remember I learned it actually quite quickly, uh, just the basics because we were all in a touch group learning sign we were kind of learning history and sign together. Exactly. I, I hope that you're practicing some of that sign with uh, all of the deaf people that have been employed by Woolworths and where you actually see them in the shops and that you, that you can practice your sign language skills there. Uh, it, it occasionally comes back to me, yes. And it's always, it always surprises people. I mean, it's always lovely that I can kind of remember some of this. It's, it's now 20 years Wonderful. ago. Uh, unfortunately, most of the words I know are things like colonization and all sorts of ARB academic jargon, but I do remember the sign for colonization. It's never, I've never forgotten it. And I discovered that sign was very, that was very funny. A lot of the, like the sign for colonization, um, you know, that, 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 that there's, a, there's a humor to sign language that I would never have expected. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think how keen people are that use sign as the, the primary language, how keen they are to teach us. Mm. So, you know, I would really encourage people that if you come across somebody like that, because a lot of them can actually read, so that you can write to them and say, how do I say, or if they can lip-read, they can just lip-read, how do I say that's funny or whatever, and, mm. and make sure that you just try and, and engage with them and, and sign.
It was, I mean, it was an extraordinary experience. We were learning, we were learning history, but Actually, we learned that sign was at the, the same purpose, just yeah. through a different medium. And, but we learned sign at the same time because we were in this touch group, and and we had and we had two signing people in it. And I, I've, I've never forgotten it. I mean, it was only a year, but it, it's kind of stayed with me. And so that we we talked the last time I spoke to you, we talked about the the diversity and the enrichment of having people from different people with different abilities, different perspectives of life, and the disability does, it, 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 it not only disables, but it also enables another way of looking at the world. And that was what I experienced in that touch group when I think back to it now. Absolutely, because I think we are selling ourselves short by, by trying to be so uniform. Um, I think our strength really does lie in diversity, and, and it is incredible to just look, look at life from you know a different perspective and and really through a different lens and try and experience some of the things that people with disabilities are experiencing in their families. Hmm. So, Jean, I'm I'm afraid we're coming to the end of the time allocated for this interview, but it's been so exciting again talking to you. I, I really enjoy it, and and it's it's just it's yeah it's been wonderful having your perspective on the world of disability and reminding me of, of some of my own experience thank you very much oh thank you very much francis and i always appreciate this opportunity to speak about something that i feel so passionately about because i really do think that we we have to make sure that that we take people with disability seriously thank, thank you. you very much thank you very much so we were chatting there to dr uh, Professor Jeanne Bornman, and she works at the CAAC, the, the, the Center for, oh, I'm going to get the, I'm now, I've lost my notes, but uh, for people who have, uh, who need assistance in communication. Um, and yeah, always a delight to talk to Professor Bornman and just to listen to her insights and to think about what she's saying. And, and I was really struck as a, as a mother with young children, I was struck by, by her, her picking up on how important it is to just, for those of you who do have young children, just to be noticing, are they communicating well? If they aren't, do I need to be doing something about that? And um, I can remember when we started pre-primary school, my, my child's teacher saying to us that she thought my daughter needed to go and see a speech and hearing therapist. And that was, that was very helpful just in terms of helping her to develop her language skills when she was about three years old. So, so it's, it's, I would really recommend all of this.